What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and welcome to season 19. Yeah, I think we're actually on season 19 now. It's pretty crazy. Uh, but before we start off this episode, I want to thank everyone for hitting, we've hit 7,000 listens across all podcasts. And I think we recently just hit 80 podcasts that have been published. So thank you guys for being there, especially when you're uh, when you're like listening to my podcast, sharing them with your family members and your friends, etc. And uh, this this week or uh, yeah, this week we're going to get back to you know conversational podcasts. And we have a special guest with us called Nura. Um, we'll get to her introduction in a moment, but we will be talking about diaspora wars. We'll be talking about the relationship between the diaspora and continental Africans. And obviously, as you can notice, there's just two of us, and both of us actually have uh, a closer connection to. Uh, actually living on the African continent. So we can't necessarily speak on the experiences of others, but we want to just outline a few issues and some of the main reasons for diaspora was in this episode. So Nura, go ahead, introduce yourself and let us know a bit more about what you do uh, and obviously what made you want to come onto this podcast. So, hi. Um, first of all, I'm just gonna ask, answer your last question first. What brought me here in a roundabout way is the pandemic and TikTok. I think um, that's where I found you like last year. And I remember being like, oh, so cool. I love it. Um, so that's number one. Um, that's what brought me here. And then eventually I got in, I mean, I kept on watching your videos throughout. And then I realized you had a podcast. I signed up for that. I got onto your Instagram. I listened to a couple of episodes, um, but mostly I would say I'm a huge fan of your TikTok page. So um, you've been a friend in my head for a while. This is embarrassing to say, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. So who am I? I am, you know, I was thinking today that you would ask me that question. And I was like, well, how am I going to answer? Um, and I think, I think, you know, my Pinterest um, my Pinterest notification from the other day really explains who I am. Um, I am somebody who watches a lot of period films, but has a lot of problems with white people. And also somebody who just loves interior design um, on a purely aesthetic level. So if there was two things to describe Nora. Those, would be, those two would be it. Um, but on top of that, I, I guess now I have like an actual job. I work in a civil society organization in Somalia. Um, I am a podcaster. I am um, an avid watcher of TV shows. I am a, a sometime writer. You know, every now and then I'll, I'll jump onto Medium. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much who I am. Yeah, thank you so much, Nora, for coming on. Uh, honestly, it's a pleasure to have you. I noticed that obviously you're someone with a lot of charisma. So this is definitely going to be an interesting episode. And I mean, we can just start off by obviously discussing this concept of the diaspora, first of all, like, why is it important? And it goes back to, I think, the shared history. You have a large body of people and their descendants who have essentially been displaced from the African continent through the mediums of transatlantic slavery. And then following that, you had <clears throat> an entire system of colonization that happened shortly afterwards in terms of history-wise. And those two, those two extended and prolonged events were the, they had the same basis for which they were actually carried out. Uh, so it was obviously racism, white supremacy, <clears throat> and obviously a mixture of capitalism there as well. So because of these shared issues, I feel like that's where we draw a lot of our connections. And that's why you find a, a lot of people like Marcus Garvey, George Padmore, Kwame Nkrumah, um, I believe Secretary as well, people really asking for African unity in terms of uh, identity um, <clears throat> and also looking at the relationship that we have with each other based on the lineage level, but also in our relationship with colonialism. So that's why I feel like it's also really important to, to keep that in mind. So I mean, I would, I would personally argue that on that basis, I am all in favor in terms of the, in, in terms of eradicating white supremacy. We need to work together with the diaspora, especially as Africans, to eliminate white supremacy and to actually have our mark in the in the world stage because that's definitely been taken away from us in the last few centuries. I'd say. I mean, what would you say about that? Do you feel like it's it's absolutely necessary for us to 
to work together with people from the diaspora to get rid of white supremacy? Of course. I mean, in an ideal world, that'd be amazing. Um, and I think to a certain extent, of course, we can, you know, form those unions, work together across, you know, all of these, this distance. I, it, of course, it's important. I, I believe in a black liberation, you know, um, that doesn't really look at where you were born, for example, right? I don't, there's, there shouldn't be this level of miscommunication and um, just very silly discourse. I think we'll get into that as we go on, but there's very, just like very dumb discourse that goes on in the diaspora wars, which I mean, is mostly virtual, but at the same time, there are real world implications to those kind of um, things. But yeah, I mean, I do believe in a black consciousness. I, I, I believe that, you know, as you said, we have all of these interlinked histories and, and, and these, you know, global systems that have kept us both down for different reasons, but for linked reasons. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, on the other hand, you know, as we continue living in this world, and I think as, as it becomes more technological and as we form these global links on, you know, these virtual networks and whatnot, I think our existence and our lived experiences, they diverge, right? Um, <laughs> As an African, what I experience and what I relate to and what you know makes me angry or what gets to me or the things or, or the issues that I'm passionate about are, you know, not in line with what an, somebody with an African American background has, you know, and that is because of the situations that we've lived in and 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 the history that we've had to live under, which is why I think, for example, it's really hard. <laughs> for older Africans, say our parents and that generation to understand why we are, we, we sort of really care about the cases of like Black Lives Matter and whatnot. But at the same time, now you see us diverging. I feel like maybe three, four years ago, there was a, a stronger link between us and, and, and the general Black diaspora. Um, and now you can see a divergence and it makes sense, you know? So I think, yeah, to a certain extent, it's important that we, we think of each other as brothers and sisters and siblings on a, on a global scale and work towards, you know, things that benef should benefit all of us. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> is, how realistic is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I think if you, I mean, a lot of people also, they, they sort of, relegate the, this discussion to a purely, I'd say, virtual interaction between the diaspora and between uh, other Africans. I'd actually disagree with them. And if I want to look at modern day examples, we can just take a look at NSARS and we can take a look at BLM. They happened relatively close to each other in terms of uh, just within, the, within that years, uh, I think it was one or two year period, where there was a lot of uh, discussion about, you know, BLM and obviously police brutality, and not just in the US, but in places like the UK, et cetera. Then obviously NSARS came about. I think that was just last year as well. Uh, so actually, yeah, same year, roughly, just a, a matter of months. Yeah, but that, that, that entire period, there was obviously uh, increasing awareness in the diaspora about African issues as well. So it's not something that's just come out of nowhere as well. I'd say that there was a lot of precursors to this. There's quite a few events that, uh, people in the diaspora were quite familiar with, I'd say, especially from West Africa. But I'd say when you look at BLM and people talked about BLM and it was taken to that stage, the world stage, and people came out protesting, even in Kenya, yeah? Uh, people came out protesting and they went all the way to the US embassy. So people care about these issues. And it's not just about, oh, you live in the US, I could care less about you. It's because, as I said, you have those shared issues or the shared basis of oppression, which in this case is race. And then obviously NSARS didn't really have that same shared issue, but they said that, okay, well, because obviously the world is obviously against us in many ways, shapes and forms, these are our brothers and sisters in terms of, we consider them to uh, have the same lineage as us. And essentially that's what I feel was the unifying factor when it came to, N to NSARS as well. Because it wasn't, and SARS, I mean, like if you looked at the protests in London, for example, absolutely huge, like absolutely huge. 
So for me, I don't think it's very much wise to deduce from, you know, when people say that this is just something that happens online uh, and it's not really something that's tangible. It's really tangible. Even if you look at the amount of people that are visiting the African continent, especially, I mean, it's now it's in the hundreds of thousands that are going to Ghana and they're generating billions of dollars in revenue for that ecosystem. And I'd say now, if you look at media as well, you can obviously look at things like Black is King. You can look at Black Panther. They're starting to permeate within these fields as well. Even the boy who harnessed the wind, you're starting to see Africa as a concept and especially a story that's being told by Africans. In many cases, not all, right? It's getting to the world stage. But obviously, we'll discuss the nuances of that about like, you know, obviously, who is getting to tell Africa's story and where that responsibility should actually lie, whether that's more in the hands of the diaspora or, uh, or obviously with Africans who are living uh, in the continent. But I wanted to get your take on that. Like, what was your reaction to the solidarity that you saw, especially for movements like, you know, NSARS and BLM? Do you feel like there was that solidarity? And if so, what do you think were the main causes? And like, why did people actually care? Like, you know? Um, yeah, I, I'm sorry, in my last answer from made it seem like it wasn't a real, that our connection between the African diaspora and, um, and Africans wasn't a real thing. I, that's not what I meant. I hope that's not how it came off. I'm just saying in, in relation to us helping one another get through our hurdles, you know, you know, through the legislature or whatever, like, are we going to put laws into place? I don't know how, how much it can help these little conversations that were happening online, but that's uh, a whole other point that I think will take a lot longer to explain fully. But yeah, I mean, if I'm going to answer, I mean, NSARS is wonderful. Like that, honestly, it was such a high point last year. Was it last year? Oh my days, it feels like last year. I know, God, it was last year. That is so crazy. It just, it, but then the other NSARS thing, uh, yeah, the, the anniversary actually happened. Like, what was it last month? And um and yeah, no, I think it was really wonderful. It was really wonderful to see people like Cardi B posting about that. I, I genuinely, I love this sort of, you know, democratization that technology is allowing us to have, you know, where things like this would not have been paid attention to five, 10 years ago, right? It would have just been an article on, 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 a, on a magazine if you're lucky to see it um, on an international magazine. But other than that, you wouldn't hear about it. So I think, yeah, of course, it's really important and we should work with one another. But I think we also need to understand and learn from perhaps how movements like BLM have been um, have been co-opted, you know, have been commodified, you know. And I think one, for example, you said that in London, uh, the B, um, the was you said NSARS. Um, I'm sorry, I really didn't know. I don't know fully about um, the 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 marching that went on there but for example that makes sense to me it makes sense to me because there's such a strong african heritage in the uk in london particularly and i mean they have what first second generation nigerians you know first second generation ghanaians somalis um and then you have what third generation jamaicans and people from you know around that area um with caribbean ancestry so there is that too right that the people um that were pushing that are more likely much more closely linked to Africa and the African continent than say people in America. Now, you know, of course, discussing the nuances of these things is the hardest part. I think that's where the cracks happen and where all of, uh, you know, this very silly discourse, I'll keep on calling it silly discourse, where all the silly discourse comes from because there is, it's such a nuanced topic, right? So I think there is that, right? Um, and I, I don't mean to downplay what BLM has done. I think it's an amazing movement and where it started from and the resurgence last year. And, you know, it's a long time coming, right? But, you know, you could see that the, the NSARS um, campaign had a bit of a more of a kick to it, you know? And that was amazing that for, for, for the first time you could see with your eyes, what's happening to youth in a place like Nigeria that is, you know, if we're gonna talk about Africans on the world stage, they are Africans on the world stage right now. They are in every field um, excelling, right? But what is happening within their own country? 
And it has a, it had a bit of a more kick to it because I don't think it was commodified the way BLM became commodified. Now we talk about, um, and eventually what happened with NSARS is that in a couple of months later, I would say a couple of weeks after the initial hype, what happened is that you started seeing discourse online that was very much so like demeaning towards Africans, you know, where it felt like the African-Americans suddenly turned back into that, oh, you know, y'all are just <laughs> poor African children with no food to eat in the middle of a desert, you barely have any water, you know? And so like, why is it that we as Africans are much more, as at least African youth, right? Are much more understanding of what goes on in America and the plight that they have? And why aren't they as an understanding of our plight? And, the, and it comes down to the fact that their fight and their long history of civil rights has been commodified for us through media, through TV. You know, we have been fed a steady diet of this and even more so now that we're on social media, whereas they don't have that full image of us just yet. And they're slowly beginning to see Africans as, you know, a, a, a continent that really doesn't need much, right? Um, from other people. We have a culture of our own. We have a youth culture of our own. We have movements of our own. We have, you know, people fighting to change the rights here. And like, and, and societies that are much more kind to us, right? So I think there's that as well. Um, I don't know if I've answered, but I hope I've, I feel like I touched on too many topics, but there you go. No, I mean, yeah, I'd say to a large degree, I would, uh, I would agree with what you're saying. Um, on the NSARS part, I can definitely see what you mean in terms of uh, how BLM was commodified um, in comparison to NSARS. I'd personally say that in terms of systematic change, though, I would, I would disagree on the, in terms of like the impact. And obviously, it's not to say that, oh, one movement is better than the other or anything. But definitely what I've seen in terms of Western impact, yeah, I've managed to see at least that BLM in many ways has actually influenced policy like at a government level. Like I'm mainly talking from the experience of Wales, but I've also seen it in other places in general, whether it's in big companies, multinational corporations, even if it's just window dressing, like after George Floyd, uh, unfortunately, you have a lot of companies that have turned into pure, pure vultures, but you have some who are also like focusing more on uh, focusing more on uh, the side of actually doing the work that needs to be done in terms of black liberation. And I'd say the good thing about Edsars, though, in terms of what you said, which I super like, I agree with, is that it it allowed Africans to tell the story of Africa because a lot of those civilians, not sorry, journalists, yeah, were purely just civilians. They were just there, like you know. Instagram turned them into essentially journalists. And you had all kinds of people when I was going into the live stream. And I think there was a lucky Tollgate incident. Yeah, tragic incident. Uh, and uh, obviously this was where, for those who don't know, the Nigerian government, uh, they had opened fire on civilians when they were trying to run. Uh, I mean, they were essentially just by the lucky Tollgate. Yeah, so they declared a curfew and without warning, they just shot at, uh, uh, quite a few people actually. So you had people who had essentially looked at uh, taking videos, sharing that online. And for me, that was really powerful because I feel, I, I, I've, I've touched on this before as well. I felt as if Africans actually had a front row seat in terms of telling the African story. And because you're totally right when you mentioned that many African-Americans have not been uh, exposed to what Africa is in terms of on the ground. A lot of people still have many stereotypes. Even when I was in the US, went for this other trip, uh, debating camp or whatever. And one of these other boys just made a joke about Africa having no water. And I mean, I'm like, how are you going to be basically parroting white supremacist points? Yeah. And you're going to also be black at the same time and not realize that you're like literally the reason why you're being oppressed is because of your. Uh, your lineage or your link back to the African continent. It's because of the fact that you're dark-skinned and you're African. That's the basis of your oppression and it's the basis of my oppression, yeah? But here you are, like, you know, literally parroting those talking points. So I think for me, that's another cause. If one, if not one of the main causes of the diaspora was, is that ignorance, yeah? And we'll probably, I mean, that's a main point that we can even get into a bit later, but I feel like it's more pertinent if we focus on other things, yeah? For So for example, I'm talking about who tells Africa's story. 
And I personally feel like, and obviously this is subject to a lot of debate, but I just feel like, especially because of the fact that the global North has exploited the global South for so long, the accumulated wealth, resources, et cetera, all of that has gone into producing a media industry that is unlike any other around the world, whether that comes to social media, whether that comes to movies, whether that comes to music, et cetera, yeah? And because of that, you have a disproportionate amount or a disproportionate uh, volume given to the voice of uh, diasporan Africans in places like Europe and diasporan Africans in places like the US as well. And this is no surprise, even considering if you look at the Pan-African conferences that I was just talking to Nura about before the podcast, all five of the first Pan-African Congresses, they happened in the West and most of them happened in Europe. So I think it's very interesting to actually critique that because even the academics that are usually writing on Africa, yes, you can be a black academic, but obviously you're gonna have a different experience about writing about the continent. If you are strictly, you've lived most of your life in the West compared to if you actually lived most of your life on the continent and had that firsthand experience of what it's like. And so obviously I, I know I'm probably ruffling a few feathers here and there, but it has to be said. Uh, I mean, I wanna know what you, you think, Dora, on that specific topic. On the specific topic of what black academics pretending they know everything. Oh, sorry, could you just, <laughs> could you not just even repeat just, it? I mean, that, that's one. I mean, not necessarily, I wouldn't say, I mean, there are some like that. I'd say most are, from my experience, quite decent. Yeah, but obviously you have some that want to talk over African voices. But what I'd say is in general, just like, you know, who gets to tell Africa's story uh, in the West, uh, even from the diaspora side. Oh my God, it's such a tap dance, isn't it? I feel like, <laughs> um, I'll just link this back to a conversation I was having, having literally yesterday. Um, there's this mutual of mine on it, Instagram and he, uh, he's a Kenyan, he's written uh, a short story, I believe. Um, and then he, he's, he's been like the sort of media world for a while. I think he was an extra in a couple of TV shows here and there. He's writing scripts, you know, he's doing all these things. He's doing the things that need to be done, you know, to get to the places that he needs to get to. But the point is, right, so um, eventually they get into this thing. Uh, there's a grant, I believe, and uh, you have to submit your work. So I think it was a script that he, submit, he submitted. And... Um, and uh, so then they show you, once they've evaluated your script, and for example, they reject it, they'll show you the metrics by which they have deemed your script worthy or not, right? So he submitted those and, you know, and then he just kind of took a screenshot, uh, a picture yesterday and posted it on his Instagram story. And he was kind of like, eh, well, you know, and it was very average. He'd, he'd like averaged out on everything. And, um, and, and then again, I was having a very similar conversation with another friend of mine who is uh, studying film. She studied film in Europe. She did a whole year there recently. I think it was her master's. And, um, and, and she kept on, you know, they would see her work and they just would not understand it. You know, they would not think it worthy. Again, much like this Kenyan guy, um, you get average grades. And on top of that, if you're on, in, a, in a competitive media um, course, then you get critiqued at a level by people that are, you know, basically giants in their field, wherever they may be. So what happens, right? Um, and you're right, because the global South has been so overexploited, we do not have the media houses, for example, that we need to tell our own stories. I mean, <laughs> so you have these Africans that have to go through these to, first of all, they have to go outside of their countries. They have to go outside of their entire continent, forget countries, um, to get into these fields, to gain the level of skill that they need to tell these stories. Because, you know, being in media is not as easy as it used to be. You, are you, are you, you're going to be creating at a level where you need the skills, right? And you want to be judged by your peers and by people that you look up to but they simply do not understand your story because one it hasn't been fed to them in popular media and two they have no concept of this lived experience right so for example stories that you and I would find 
heartwarming and you know very like we would connect to at a deep level because it tells parts of our stories you know simply by the fact that it's being told by another African they cannot connect to it at all whereas you have us here who you know I, I, I genuinely believe you need to bring class into every type of conversation you have people like us who are what middle upper class Africans who have been fed uh been force fed American slash English media since you know we were toddlers who've been grown up in front of the television who very deeply understand white stories even if we don't realize how deeply we understand them we understand the nuances of their stories because we've been so and it's affected us and it's molded us into certain things and and so you have really it's just wild when you think about it right that they have zero understanding of what it really means to be an African and here I am an African and I can tell you about Milwaukee and Minnesota and how you know in the stories that like they're being told and I, I understand the very city and the character of the city right that is the level of understanding that we have of people that live in the global in, in the global north right I understand what when jokes are made about Canadians being too nice I have I don't know if I've even met any Canadians in my life frankly I have to think about it but I have these deep understandings and so like there's this like gulf that we can that we cannot like jump over right so what is the response to that the response to that has to be like supporting small African meat like if you can take whatever five ten dollars out of your pocket and you can put it into the patreon of an african media content creator that you can put it there because those are the people that are going to be telling our stories you know we are out here we love all of these shows that hbo and netflix and blah 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 makes you know but how are they made they're made by these huge conglomerates um that took decades decades to make these media houses have been there since the early what 18 the late 1800s right early 1900s they have their roots going back that far we do not right so put your money where your mouth is if you want to hear african stories you really we really have to whatever coins that we have invest into it um so that's number one right the people that are telling the african stories at the bottom line have to cross all these thresholds made by non-africans and what happens at the end of that you know line you've distilled this so-called african story to fit a western narrative and at some point it loses the authenticity it really does and you know as you were talking earlier i was just thinking like what would our media houses even look like you know, because what we're doing, whether we, we admit it or not, in almost every field is copying and pasting um, systems that have worked for Westerners. Not even thinking of the dynamics of how that works in a culture, in African culture, in, in, in a Tanzanian culture, in a South African culture, in a Ghanaian culture, which are different, you know? So we, we cannot even conceptualize what that looks like. So it's just, it's always so crazy to me. The only thing I think, the only thing that can really help us is continually looking inwards and putting money into the hands of Africans, actual Africans to make and write these stories. And you know, if we need to be a little bit annoying on social media and just not consume media that is, you know, sometimes I think there are very silly things going online. Like I remember a couple of people were really mad about the dear white, uh, dear white people character, the Kenyan character who had a, I th wait he was Ghanaian but he had a Kenyan accent right I know I know you have very strong emotions about this right if we are going to voice our problems and just be like we're simply not going to consume this that is power as well so yeah yeah no I'd say I I think the point that you mentioned about a lot of people in the west yeah not understanding African stories I think that's very pertinent and obviously, because colonialism came with globalization, you find, as you said, us understanding the dynamics of cities that we've never been to, or maybe don't even intend to go to. I mean, you know, you can, I can tell you about Minneapolis, I can tell you about Dallas and the vibes there, I can tell you about Paris, I can tell you about, oh, London is like this, oh, I can tell you about how uh, Rome is, you know, people have those ideas at the back of their heads but we don't know how to explain like I think it's very much regional you might hear people 
like even actually it's not even as regional as i think it is but like do we even know the stories of the the vibes of joburg or cape town or Durban, like, do we know about the the cultural nuances? Yeah, and I feel like um, because of the colonial- sorry, I just want to jump in and say I have yeah. been force feeding myself African content. Yeah, and like, even if I don't like it, I'll go on Netflix and watch it. So when it comes to South Africa, because they have so much content out there nowadays, especially on Netflix, um, I can tell you the vibes of Joburg. I can tell you the vibes of Cape Town. I have been now. If you were to turn back and say, what are the vibes in like Ghana? bro yeah. I, i'm done i'm gone maybe maybe lagos you know yeah i mean it, it took me going to a school where 50 out of 54 african nations were represented in the student body for me to realize the true diversity of africa because i mean i got to learn like you know a bit of pigeon from nigeria and i got to learn uh you know just the cultural nuances of places like south africa and even, you know, just the basic things like braai or basically like barbecue, like, you know, having that day out where you have like a grill, whatever. I learned about the differences between pap and ugali, you know, and how those dishes are made. There was just so much to like learn from. So I understand what you mean by, you know, even we've been, how is it that we know more about the West? Yeah. And then we know about even other cities in the continent. And you know, that just speaks to obviously the, the volume of media that is obviously coming, like oh, it speaks about the media gradient, where this media is coming from and where it's going to, essentially, and that how that interacts with us. And even, um, I mean, I'm going to ask you a question actually, because I want to ask you about because uh, you mentioned you know films made by actual Africans. Because I'm I'm actually curious, yeah, because I'm pretty sure there's either someone that's throwing the phone at the wall right now and be like, oh no, I'm an actual African, and uh, like let's say living in the West. Or there's someone that's probably like agreeing with you. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, like, what is your definition of an actual African in that case? Because I think it's very interesting that you you said that. I just wanted to like find out from you. Um no, so I think <laughs> damn, that just sounds bad now, doesn't it? Like, I'm not trying to say other people are not. I think what I meant by an actual African is somebody, you know, first generation African or, you know, straight from the continent. I think, you know, we cannot, we cannot downplay in especially this kind of world, we cannot downplay the importance of our lived realities. If your lived realities is a council house in, in, in the UK, you know, there's going to be a huge level of understanding, you know, this life that we cannot understand. Now I, I can see that very clearly in say the people that I know in the UK, I'm not very, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I try to stay out of Somali communities to a certain extent, but somebody who, who came from the same type of household as me, simply because they lived in another country and everything else in that household might be very similar within the home, right? Um, but if you're like a second generation Somali in, the, in uh, Somali in the UK, we will have about maybe 20, 30% that we can relate on, you know? And that is oftentimes directly related to our uh, nationality. Now, like, I think it's really important when people like Daniel Kaluuya succeed, you know? Um, and if he was to tell a story from, I, I really, I don't know if he was born on the continent, but I don't think so. But I'm for this example, I'm assuming that he was born in the UK. Um, he would have a very important immigrant story to tell. Now, that's what we've seen over the last couple of years, right? We've seen the immigrant child story really flourish, you know? You know, whether it be poetry, all of those spoken word poetries about, <laughs> about refugees and all of these things. And so there's an overrepresentation, not an overrepresentation, but there is a more representation of, say, the immigrant story. Now, when I say an, an African, African, what I mean is a child of this continent that's born and raised here, you know, who has an intimate understanding of, of the life here and what it means to live like, because like African living, once you live it, you know, you know it, you know, there's so much things. Sometimes I'll see, I had a friend in Zambia who was sending me pictures, just like random pictures of him walking around. And his roads looked exactly like the roads that I have in, I, I had at the time in Dar, Dar es Salaam. And 
Um, and now there's certain places in, in, in Mogadishu, in Hama right now, that I'll take pictures of and I'll send to my friends or I'll look around and be like, this looks exactly like a road somewhere in Tanzania. And the architecture of the houses. So there's this like, you know, there is a real uniting factor there because there is real meaning in living on this continent. So when I say an African, I mean somebody born and raised here. You know, and they tell different stories. And I realized, I realized this when I realized that I needed to start consuming more African media because I realized that I was very, to, to a very certain extent, very un-African. And I really had to like rediscover my Africanness. And I think this was also like, you know, we need to admit what consuming so much white media has done to us. It's also left us with perceptions and, and, and biases that we don't even realize that we have. You know, and so I, I don't think it's it's helpful for us to be angry at say the African Americans, our African American siblings who don't understand, you know, because we have been to a certain extent touched by the same madness, uh, which is through their media. So I just I really do believe in the importance of I look at my friends right now who who are um, pursuing careers in media, and and every story that they tell there are elements that I intimately understand, that I deeply and subconsciously understand because it is an African tale. Um, and I remember last year during the holiday season, Netflix released this, this South African show, I think it's how, how, how to Ruin Christmas. And uh, the second part is coming out in a couple of weeks. And I was so excited. And I was watching that show that, I think it's, it's a mini series. I think there's like three episodes. I was watching it and I was thinking, I'm enjoying this so much. Although I know very little about South African um, culture, I have a couple of friends who are from the South of Africa. And so, you know, the, the same thing with you, like I got used to my friends having brides, like that was introduced to me as well. And like how they make shakalaka at home. These things. And um, so I was watching, because I've been friends with them for a couple of years and then I watched the show, there was things I Im immediately started to recognized because they were part of my friends' lives, you know? And that is representation. When I can look at my friends and say, hey, like I've seen that on a TV show, that's so cute. You know, and like when they went to go pay her lobola or like, I I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but like basically her bride price and, you know, and then the family, there's one beautiful scene when um, the, the girls, yeah, the, the, the groom's family comes to take the bride, right? So they're not allowed into the family's gate. Each family comes from either side of the gate. And so they stand and the, his family has to sing and tell her that like, you know, you're part, open these doors, you're part of our family now. Like, you know, and it was, oh my, I remember crying at that scene, like bawling my eyes because that is, you know, very reminiscent of, you know, bride price and 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 sort of like the nikah and the meher within Somali communities and the festivities that weddings come with. That's representation. When I can look at these stories and see, you know, a tiny leaf of my own story. And unfortunately, the only people that can tell that story with any real, with any real authenticity, is an African. Um, not to make this point too long, because I really do believe in the strength of media and you know the uniting factor that it is. Um, I listen to this really great podcast called, um, you might remember this, and she focuses mainly on um, the history of, and <laughs> the history of Hollywood basically. And, um, and there's this one uh, series that she has where she talks about this woman called Polly Platt, who is a film producer. And throughout each of one of those stories, this woman is deeply connected to the, the, to the movies that she was making, to the point where she would infuse herself and her stories in there. And I was thinking, oh, like for a couple of episodes I was listening, I was like, oh my God, girl, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. You're saying no to jobs. You have two children at home. How, like, how can you say no to a job? <laughs> you need to pay for these kids. But no, like she cared about what she was making to the extent where she, if she couldn't authentically make this piece of media, she would not be there you know and I'm not saying that all media needs to be highbrow not at all I mean if you're going to make a silly YouTube video and it and it clicks with people it does but there's only stories that an African can tell and unless they have the support and that's oftentimes financial support that they need um, they cannot tell those stories as, as authentically as we need them to tell it 
you know like there's a lot of amazing stories waiting to be told <laughs> a treasure trove you know and i mean we're getting there yeah i totally agree with you in terms of africans telling their own i mean our own different you know stories because nowadays you're actually finding a few you know individuals who are actually taking this up for example if you guys really want a comic that uh, is written by a kenyan i highly recommend relics media and you can look at uh, his story uh, and obviously how he's manifested that story through these comics it's really really cool and draws them uh, and he's also like hired a few artists as well so they're doing that as well with the comics it's really really interesting if you ask me and it's a step in the right direction in terms of africans actually entering this space as well but also i think there's another um i think there's uh there's a benefit as well in terms of getting black people from around the world just tell their stories as you said everyone has their own shared experience and i think the key thing over here is that as much as we're also talking about africans telling their own story i think also diaspora and africans should also tell their story as well and i'm not saying you haven't said that by the way i'm just saying like it's really important too because i realized that even in the West, they're also fighting against white supremacy on the, of a different breed, essentially. So essentially, you have these awesome pages, yeah? I can't remember, I think it's called Black Sands Entertainment. Yeah, Black Sands Entertainment. They've really focused on the stories of Egypt. They've also focused on a, lot, a couple of other stories, but they've made sure to have Black, black characters that are present there. So I think that, yeah, on, in terms of Africans also getting funding, it's so important, like, you know, Africans on the continent getting that funding it's so crucial if we're going to move this forward equally so as well if you're in the diaspora and you're passionate about telling your story as a diaspora and african i highly recommend that you actually go ahead and tell that story through whichever medium that obviously fits you the best because we need african uh, artists that are out there that are telling their own stories in different ways of course we need african poets as well we need african academics as well in the diaspora that need to keep moving into these spaces because as well that is for us like an internal attack on white supremacy within the western sphere while africans on the other side of the sphere or like uh the other side of what dubois called the color line now we have to also just attack it from our side and on an external basis now so as Nura gave us the idea of obviously finding those small artists and finding those people who are involved in that scene to actually get their stories told I think for me that is so so crucial and honestly we can't even we can't afford to actually lose that if you want to get a position in as you said the world stage and another company i want i want to think about is kugali media i think they're actually going to do a partnership with disney i can't remember but they're doing uh, cartoons and those cartoons um they're quite they're quite interesting in terms of like you know the the artists that are involved i think there's one from uganda and there's a couple from Nigeria as well. They're just all teaming up together and they're going to be telling African stories. And I think they've actually gotten a deal with Disney. I think for me, what the main thing would be, would be to try and get that level of independence, for example, where we have the right channels through which we can actually make content, as we said, uh, for let's say continental Africans. And we have a, a large array of support from continental Africans. And then we also find a way to actually get that out to the rest of the world. So I think that there's a lot that needs to be done on the ground. And like, for me, that's so, so like important. And obviously we've talked about media. Uh, we've talked about all these different uh, things. And I guess we've, we've also kind of talked about them as the reason for diaspora was as well. Uh, but maybe I want to shift the conversation a bit uh, to another part, because we've talked about media. But I want to now talk about things like academics, for example. So we know that, unfortunately, oh, it's just so frustrating for me, right? A lot of the books that I read on African history and politics, a lot of it is actually white people that are telling their story of the African continent. But at the same time, if it's a black person, they're most likely a diasporan African. And that for me, it's like, yeah, it's better. But at the same time, as you said, there's that different experience. You bring an entire different experience to the, your writing and the style of writing. And I've noticed this, by the way, even when I'm reading through different historical academic papers from people, for example, who experienced colonialism and people who observed colonialism, because there's a huge difference between the two. And that those people who uh, they had experienced colonialism, those texts were able to communicate with me in a different way and in a more powerful way, I'd actually argue. 
So we need to actually, as we said, get funding for African academics to get into these fields, to start attacking externally and to get into the fields of academia. Because I'm sick and tired of you know, having zero representation when it comes to things like foreign aid discussions. Like we have very, very little representation in those fields. And even if we do have representation, it's like people aren't getting the funding. So how are they going to go into these big journals? How are they going to publish their books? How are they going to make sure that their knowledge is being spread around? I'm so sure, I'm so sure that there's so many professors, there's so many career academics that are struggling to get into the academic scene because of a lack of funding. I wanted to know your take on that specifically, because you said you're also like a writer. Like, as a writer, have you had any challenges in terms of getting your, your say like uh, distributed around the world? And like, you know, what do you think would be the best way to actually solve that gap? Um, I just want to make this very clear. I am a writer as much as BuzzFeed content creators are writers. That's the level of writing I'm at. I'm sorry, just to be honest, like when it comes to like, I, I love academics. I think I have, I have ended up being friends with a lot of people that are extremely smart, that have been in rooms, you know, with big brains, big brains, you know, Yale students, Ivy Leaguers, people that have had to do that level of academic research and learning. And I know how hard it is. And it's no easy feat, you know. Um, but I think what happens is that, you know, and this is a problem in all academic fields, um, in, in even outside the continent, but it becomes a very tight niche, right? You, you really have to impress your peers with your level of smartness, you know? That is where street cred comes from academics. It comes from a panel of your own peers. And what happens is that I think a lot of arrogance can enter that kind of um, African when you are when you are forced to be in these spaces that are continually demeaning um, your culture. And I think you know I don't know if it's very common now, but um, there's certain times that I read Franz Fanon, and I thought like this man has a very and I and I, I want to say this as somebody who hasn't read a lot of Franz Fanon, but I was reading um, what, what was a white mask. I tried to read it, I'm not smart enough. But anyway, I got this slight feeling that, you know, there was a reverence to whiteness, right? As much as he was saying that these, they are the bane of our existence, there's sort of this reverence for the white man. And I think that ends up happening to academics, especially if you look at academics from people who were, you know, talking about um, African independences, a lot of African academics that covered that. There's sort of a sort of reverence for the white man, because what happened with most of these people is that they were sent abroad. They had to go study in the UK and the US, the UK very often. And you know, this this happened to people like in my father's age group. You know, they got sent out. They got you know scholarships that took them to these countries and. You know, and so they came back to their nations to be the academics of their nations. And, you know, and I don't think it's a huge thing. I don't, I don't want to make it a big problem, but like you see that tone in a lot of learned Africans, even in like society. Like I would see it in school settings. I would see it in work settings. You know, these very learned Africans who have done years of studying have this sort of like the white man has done it right Therefore, we also need to follow in that path, right? There isn't that, and I think there's a certain level of chaoticness <laughs> that activists have, you know, um, where they can reject, fully reject the idea of Western or white supremacy, right? And I don't know if academics can do that to a certain extent. Now, new age academics, these younger people that are, you know, our siblings ages perhaps, you know, who are in their early 30s, you can see there's a complete rejection of, of this idea that we are somehow inferior, you know, that our, you can see that the narrative is now turning fully towards Africans are not inherently inferior. They have been forced into the situation because of constant back-to-back -back exploitation at, you know, astronomical levels. So that is my idea of, I mean, and I think the, the, the another problem is what happens is that 
inherently with African academics, they come back and they're gatekeeping, especially with older academics. There's a certain level of gatekeeping that they come back with. And, and an idea that, you know, I remember like teachers in university and I, I tried to get out of university as soon as possible. So I wasn't the greatest of students, but I would notice this thing where, you know, they started to really believe that if you can't speak English very well, that you're, you know, somehow not smart. You know, there's the metrics by which they consider something to be of value and, you know, are not in line with, I think, what we're trying to do, which is, hey, complete rejection of, of this Western way of, of looking at our achievements and to truly define what our own successes are, you know, and the societies that we want to build. Because success and, you know, academic rigor in the West is, 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 you can see that they really care about like, you have to have suffered to, to take out this body of work. You have to have suffered through years and years of academic study for your word to mean anything at all, right? There's, and it's always linked to like capitalism to a certain extent. Even in their economies, you have, had, you have to work crazy hours for you to be worthy of, you know, and that's a capitalist <laughs> mentality that's supposed to make you a sheep and, you know, continually working for these companies, right? So like, I, I don't want to see our universities be a place of like extreme stress and, and simply because we have to, to succeed by the metric of, of what you, you, universities in the UK, Right. So like, again, I keep on coming back to this thing where we have to completely redefine our societies because they are so interlinked with the colonialist, um, the, the shadows that they've left in all facets of our societies. Um, yeah, I hope I've answered that. But like academia, I'll take mine from YouTube, to be honest. I, I think perhaps a lot of the of the opinions that I have about them are very biased simply because I can never, that would never be me. I'm not smart enough. You know, I get, I, I understand where you're coming from. I think I would, I would take a different stance on uh, Franz Fanon and his work because I haven't read him as much as well. I think I've just read uh, a bit of The Wretched on uh, the Wretched of the Earth. And I think the book that you're referring to was Blackface White Masks, where he's essentially talking about uh, neocolonialism and uh, the essentially the post I think post-independence Africa and how that can easily be threatened by neocolonialism so I wouldn't say that Franz Fanon was uh, I mean from my reading of his work I don't think that I've seen him uh, revere in, in in many ways like you know the white man but I do think that in terms of the way we do research it's definitely I, it's, a, it's an indirect reverence for white academ academia, right? And why do I say this? Is because the way we treat knowledge nowadays with research papers, journals, et cetera, it's become really gentrified. And because of that, I feel like it's really adhering to this very much Western European white standard of what is, uh, you know, what is considered good research, yeah? So I wouldn't say that, for example, yeah, like, you know, obviously I'm not saying don't write journals, yeah, but you, there should be different and more accessible ways for people, especially Africans that are living on the continent, to access your research. And this for me is one of the main things that I was talking about in the diaspora, right? I'd say that for diaspora and Africans, because you have a higher level of privilege in these fields, and that for me is, is basically a fact based, of, based off of all the different fields that I've looked at, right? Because you obviously have that privilege in that field, it would be awesome to have more accessible ways of accessing that continent for people who are just lay people. Yeah. Whether that's like, it doesn't necessarily have to be all the nuance of it. And maybe that can be reserved for a book or something because books have been there forever and they've been, you know, essentially uh, around in different parts of the world as well. So I can't say that that's necessarily white, white academia, but the kind of exclusivity and as you said, capitalistic nature behind becoming a career academic that is something that I feel is, is somewhat threatening to this idea of Black liberation, especially if we're trying to get simple ideas, or even if they're complex ideas, we should be able to make them simple enough for people at the layman level to understand. 
especially if you're talking about something like African development, where the people that you're talking about, yeah, they might not understand these concepts that you're talking about because of how, because of all the jargon that you're using. And they don't necessarily understand the direct cause and effect of like how that's going to affect their lives. So for sure, I would say that there's definitely an onus on academics that are coming from the West, to, uh, especially if you're coming from a diaspora and background, use your privilege in order to connect with other African academics and have their works, first of all, featured within yours or like work with them on certain projects, but also try and make it simple for lay people to understand what you're saying. And also don't, don't speak over Africans and try and involve Africans that are uh, continental Africans as much as possible in your research. That's one of the major, major things that I would have to say. And um, anything more on academics? I wouldn't say too much more on academics, but generally speaking, yeah, we need to change the way we're doing that research and we need to make it more people oriented because even as you said, for looking at the, the African universities in the future, I don't think that we would want them to resemble Western universities. And obviously this is a reminder first and foremost to me, myself, yeah, someone who's actually gone abroad to study, yeah. And I think that for me, it's more like the times where I've had to even check myself and just say that, yo, man, you know, you have to really look at the way you're seeing this academia. You have to look at how you're engaging with academic discourse. Make sure you're not selling out is the key thing that I'm trying to say. Because what you essentially have is when you have an educated class based on uh, people who have gone deep into research, academia, et cetera, sometimes you actually cause a, a wedge between people in society to actually form. So in my opinion, you have to really be cognizant of that if you are someone who's actually going to the West to study. Make sure that when you're going back, yeah, remember people have different levels of knowledge, indigenous knowledge and experiential knowledge that your degree will never be able to give you. As I said, literally you can have 20 years, you can be studying a subject for 20 years, but someone may have been living that subject for 20 years. And those are two very, very different things. That's as a reminder to me and obviously any diaspora and African, uh, Africans as well uh, when it comes to talking about the continent is that in, if you're not involving people or you're writing about the continent, but you're not involving the people of the continent in your work, I think that's going to be heavily problematic. Anyways, I think that's going to wrap it up just because of time. But uh, before obviously we go, I just wanted to ask if you have any closing statements, Noura, just a short like one minute closing statement uh, on the topic because uh, I think the the main thing we'll just we've discussed today anyways and it's probably going to be the title of the podcast is whether or not we are finding uh diaspora and Africans speaking over continental Africans on matters of the continent. I would like to begin my closing statements with um, if anybody's going to come for me about the Franz Fanon thing please know I love them this man okay I love the ground that he walks on please don't come for me with that um yeah don't come no, I, guys, please. I, thank you thank you but also like just a, a quick note on france like there's nobody there's no other academic i think that explains the, inf the inferiority uh complex that is pushed into africans better than he does i think he really like you know and it's at a, such a subconscious level and i think like I, honestly i'm just gonna go back and find an audiobook because i think i could do an audiobook right now i could do a france for an audiobook I'm going to do that. But other than that, yeah, I think um, I think these conversations are nuanced. I think it's fine to be confused about how our stories are linked, how the Black experience is different, how the African experience is different. I think it's okay. I think my parting words, most importantly, something that I've learned over the last what, year, two years on, on Twitter, where I just kind of relaxed and stopped shouting at people online, is that we as black people have had to go through a lot even us that have it good have had to go through a certain number of hurdles simply because of the color of our skin and you know uh, where we were born right so we really do need to extend amazing levels of grace to one another if we want to form the connections that will move us forward as black people right so like and that's just gonna sound super corny, but we really do have to love one another, even through all of this like very stupid discourse. And there's a lot of African Americans who, of course, have said very 
ignorant things to us um, and will continue to do so. There's a lot of Africans that will continue saying very ignorant things to one another. Um, but ultimately, you know, black liberation exists. And for us to believe that we're gonna get there involves a lot of handholding through a lot of bigotry. Um, so to the level that we can do that, I think we should do that. And yeah, I mean, discussing these things is no level of hate. It's no, it's not judgment. It's just conversations that need to be had simply that they, so they can be out there, you know? And yeah, um, uh, Malcolm X is amazing. And I will leave you all in the spirit of Malcolm X. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Nora, for being able to make it on. Again, guys, um, I was not able to get someone from across the pond here today. That is my fault. Uh, but again, this is an open discussion. So hit me up if you're interested in coming on. Probably going to have to do a part two just to balance it out as well, because I'm sure that there would have been a lot of extra nuance added to the conversation by someone uh, from across the pond or even just from here in the UK as a diaspora in Africa. So thank you guys so much for listening. Honestly, it's been a great start to season 19. And I'm going, I'm still deciding on the name for the new uh, series that we're going to be having bi-weekly, hopefully. But we're going to be focusing on the assassinations of African leaders by the West and how that contributed and impacted uh, the African continent and uh, contributed to, obviously, the level of development in different countries. So I think we're going to call that series The Bloody Truth. And uh, I hope that you guys will like it. Uh, we're going to start off with Patrice Lumumba next week, uh, Saturday, and that should be that mainly for that week. But thank you guys so much for listening, and we're going to see you next week. So um, hope you guys have a great week.